Amen. If you have your Bible this morning, you can return to the Old Testament, to the book of 1 Samuel, and we are headed to 1 Samuel and chapter 7 this morning. If you need a Bible, feel free to grab one and keep one from the welcome table there in the back. If you are just jumping in with us, or maybe you've been with us and you'll recall, we are now returning to the book of 1 Samuel, and this is our fourth week walking through the book in a series that I've entitled, Give Us a King. Give Us a a king. And the title of the series is really taken from 1 Samuel chapter 8 that we'll actually look at next week more in depth. But as we've looked at almost every week, 1 Samuel chapter 8 shows us this incredibly ugly moment. It shows us a little bit about our hearts as people. And it really is the warning that this book has for us. Listen to chapter 8 verses 19 and 20 just to set again the context for the entire story here. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. This is not the heart of the Lord in these people. Now, it is July 4th, so happy Independence Day. And you can almost hear in this moment the American colonists sort of murmuring in the background, yeah, that's not going to work out the way that you think it is. Pursuing any human king or queen and thinking that they are going to meet your needs, that they are going to fulfill your wants and desires, that any person can make things better, it's not going to work out the way that you think it is. And, and 1 Samuel is telling us that spiritual reality as well. It's not going to go the way that you think it is. And that's why our ultimate hope is never in any one person. Our ultimate hope is never in any particular politician or office holder or government official. Our hope is never even in any particular preacher or personality of preacher. Our hope is in King Jesus because he's the only one who can fill those shoes. Amen? The events of 1 Samuel happened 3,000 years ago, but it's interesting because their hearts have the very same issues, the same heart issues that we have this, this very day. Because like then and now, there is a God, thank God, who is pursuing us with his grace and mercy and calling us back. God is, Jesus is, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our sin, our problem is the same yesterday and today and forever, but the hope of the gospel is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so even as we, like the Israelites, are tempted to take our eyes off of the one true faithful God, the scripture this morning is going to call us in a fresh way to turn our hearts back to the Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And even here in the Old Testament, once again, you're going to see that the Old Testament cries out the name of Jesus the Messiah telling us that the prophet that we've always needed, the priest that we've always needed, the king that we've always needed, the judge that we've always needed is the one who would come, King Jesus. Let's take a moment and let's pray and ask for God's blessing over his word, and then we're going to jump into 1 Samuel 7. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Lord, we submit our hearts and our lives to you afresh this morning, knowing that on our own life does not work and knowing that in you we have everything that we need. In you is hope and in his life. And so, Father, we turn our hearts by your grace and your mercy alone back to you this morning. We pray these things in the, the precious name of Jesus. Amen. 
four applications for us this morning as we walk through 1 Samuel, as we're going to walk through essentially the entire chapter of chapter 7. Number one is this, as we jump into verses 2 through 4. Number one, we must return to the Lord with all our heart. We must return to the Lord with all of our heart. Look with me at verses 2, 3, and 4. From the day that the ark, that is the ark of the covenant, from the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, listen to what he says, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. These first three verses give us really a step-by-step guide for what does it mean, what does real repentance look like in the life of a regular average human being, and, and how does that lead to restoration with God? The first thing that you're going to see here in these verses is real repentance Real repentance is about being upset over your sin. Real repentance is about being upset over your sin. If you've been with us as we've gone through 1 Samuel thus far, then you will recall at the beginning of the series that the Philistines, this enemy, beat down Israel and subdued them, killed their priest at the time named Eli, and stole the Ark of the Covenant. And then we saw the next week that God in His grace and faithfulness did what His people could not do, that He subdued the enemy Philistines and actually brought disease upon them. And when the enemies of God realized that this disease was from the Lord, they actually sent the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel. But Israel makes a colossal mistake. See, Israel had really substituted any sort of real relationship with God for basically using the Ark of the Covenant as a good luck charm. And sometimes in our own walk of faith, we can treat Jesus, we can treat prayer and relationship with God as sort of a good luck charm. We pull him out when we need him. They essentially did the same thing, but they also did not take God's warning about the seriousness of sin. They didn't take it to heart. And so there's a number of Israelites who basically put their hands on the ark, which God had said specifically, do not do, and a number of Israelites die in that moment. We don't have any other details from the Scripture other than that. And so for that reason, the Israelites now have had 20 years as a people, as a nation, as the people of God, to reflect on their sin, and they are beginning to turn their hearts back to the Lord. And so Samuel is encouraging them in this. But that Ark of the Covenant has literally sat there where it's not supposed to be for 20 years, even as God begins to move in their hearts. If you've ever had somebody that you prayed for, Lord, change my my brother, my sister, my family member, my friend's heart. God is faithful. God is working in His people's hearts. But what you see is that they begin by lamenting or grieving over their sin. See, here's the reality. Sin is a lot of fun. I'm not going to pretend like it's not. Sin is a blast for a while. But eventually your sins, as Scripture, will find you out and the consequences will find you out. And so for you and I, real repentance begins with grief over sin, but not just the consequences of the sin. That's easy. Oh man, this stinks. I got caught. 
But does your heart break this morning when you recognize that, that when you have walked away from God, that it has affected your relationship with God? It's affected a holy and righteous God. And it's affected maybe other people who surround you. Does it break your heart? Does your sin bother you, in other words? Real repentance is also, though, from this passage we see, it's, it's turning away from sin and turning to Jesus. Real repentance is turning away from sin and turning to the Lord Jesus. See, it's not enough, as many of us will tend to automatically, to go, I know that's bad. I'm just going to stop doing that bad thing. I'm just going to do better, try harder. I'm just going to stop. Well, many of you know from experience, it doesn't work, does it? I'm just going to fix this problem myself. The gospel of Jesus is not external behavior modification. It is not do better, try harder. Many of you will recall the Kenan Thompson Saturday Night Live sketch. Kenan Thompson is playing a, a social political commentator on a news brief, and his assessment of the country's problems are, and his solution is this. He says, fix it. He looks at the co-commentator. He, he brings up an issue, a social political problem. And he says, fix it. Fix it. Fix it. It's not enough. Or maybe if you go back a little bit further, you'll recall the Bob Newhart sketch. It's a Bob Newhart sketch where he's a counselor, and he's got a lady who's come in with some sort of issue, emotional issue. She pours out her heart before him and looks at Bob Newhart, and, and Bob Newhart assesses her situation, her problem, her challenge. He looks at her, looks into her eyes, and he says, stop it. Stop it. Stop it. And for five minutes, he rails against her and says, stop it. Many times, that is the way that our human hearts interact. Outside of Christ, we go, fix it. Stop it. It doesn't work. Repentance is turning away from sin. Oh, but brother and sister, understand, you must turn to Jesus. Look at the scripture on this topic, Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 13. For my people, God says, have committed two evils. There's two problems here. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You see what he's saying? He is saying, I am tired of God's people drinking desert sand and expecting it to quench their thirst when in reality right next to them is the fountain of living water. Turn away from the desert sand. Turn away from the sewage and turn to the living water of Jesus Christ in the gospel. But we see one more thing here at the very beginning. Real repentance also does something else. It says explicitly that it puts away worship of destructive idols and replaces it with the worship of Jesus. Real repentance puts away the worship, the worship of destructive idols and replaces it with the worship of Jesus. You may say, well, what's an idol? Sort of biblical language. It's not necessarily a word that we use in our everyday conversation. What is an idol? An idol is anything, can be anything that you put ahead of God. Anything. An idol is taking the good things, all good things are from the Lord. An idol is taking any good thing that God has given you and turning it into an ultimate thing. See, the problem with idols is they cannot live up to your expectations. They cannot deliver. We all worship someone or something. That is a reality. Every single person who's ever lived, we all worship someone or something. But idolatry is worshiping a God 
that can't deliver. Sex, money, power, politics, drugs, alcohol, food, a new home, a new boat, a new car, the latest pyramid scheme, your body image, popularity, self-righteousness, gossip, judging others. They are all little idols that fester in our soul, and we make them the most important thing. But as Christians, so often what we do is we know those are bad things, but maybe I can have a little bit of this idol and I can have a little bit of God. What the Philistine culture taught Israel and what our postmodern America teaches us is that you can have lots of gods and mix them all up together and worship many things. But Jesus Christ demands exclusive allegiance. And and real repentance is a heart that says, I embrace, I run to the reality that Jesus is the only thing that I need and he is my only king. And I desire to, as the scripture says, put away those other things. And so there's an invitation here. Will you come to him? But how are we going to do it? If the passage ended right there, it would seem very hopeless. How are we going to do this? Number two, as we continue through the passage, we need grace and truth from the Lord Jesus. We need grace and truth from the Lord Jesus. We see this in verses 5 through 9. I want to read to us verse 5 and 6. I'm going to skip verse 7 because I want to tackle that separately. There's a really important point there in verse 7. So we're going to read 5, 6, 8, 9 here. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Verse 7 is going to tell us the Philistines are coming to attack. We're going to look at that in a moment. Verse 8, and the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Begins with, do not cease to cry out to the Lord for us. Brother and sister, do not cease to cry out to the Lord. Have you reached the joyous moment of desperation where you cry out to King Jesus and say, I can't do it. I can't keep living this way anymore. I tried my way and I confess, I admit, it doesn't work. And Lord Jesus, I want to do it your way. Verse 6, they use the language of confession. They say, I have sinned against you. Forgive me. My sin is against you directly, Lord God. I need you. Verse 3, though, don't miss. In verse 3, there's a declaration of faith. Samuel reminds the people, he will deliver you. Saving faith in Jesus involves two things, admitting the truth that you are a sinner and asking for Jesus' grace to save you. It's grace and it's truth. Got to have both. Our hearts want to run away from the truth of our need from Jesus, but let this morning the Holy Spirit remind you that what you need is his grace and mercy in your life. See, real repentance admits that we are hopeless on our own and believes that Jesus will deliver you. It's the language of, I can't fix this in our lives. I can't stop doing this on my own. I need you to do for me what I cannot do myself. 
I had this conversation with Joe in the hospital this week. I've had this conversation with many people over my adult life as a believer. There's a question that I'll ask people. It was not an original question on my part, but the question is this. If you were to stand before God and he were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven, what would your answer be? Consider that question carefully. If you were to stand before God and he were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven, what would your answer be? The world will tell you the answer is, I've tried to be a pretty good person. Tried to do the right thing. I haven't done anything that bad. Not like that guy over there. Not like that group over there. It's not the gospel, though. The gospel says the answer to that question is, Father, I don't deserve it. But because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross on my behalf and his death and payment for my sins and his resurrection from the dead three days later, he has paid my sin. It is as far as the east is from the west and you have promised that you have forgotten that sin. And so by the merits of Jesus, you have said that I am welcome in your house. That's the answer. Do not believe when the world says otherwise. Is it, a not, it is not about what you can do to earn salvation. It is about what Jesus has already done on your behalf. We say, forgive me of my sin, Lord Jesus. Make me new. I take myself off the throne of my life. I want you to be king. And I'm going to need your help, Lord Jesus, every day moving forward to do just that. It's not a one-time moment. He loves you eternally. And real repentance believes, guys, that Jesus is the solution. Jesus is the solution to all of our needs. And I, wanna, I want you to see here how the Old Testament shows us that in particular. You see, the entire Old Testament points to the entire New Testament. It is one book. It is God's Word. It is one story of redemption. The entire Old Testament shows humanity their need for a Savior, certainly, because God's people mess up over and over and over again, like we do today. But it also gives us these glimpses of what the Messiah, of what the Savior is going to be like. And Samuel here, a regular dude, just like you and me, he's not super Samuel. He's just like you and me. But he serves in multiple roles imperfectly on behalf of God's people. And what he's doing is he's showing us how there is one who, who will come who is going to fulfill those roles perfectly. And ultimately, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who will come to earth one day, they anticipate it. And so Samuel here is a priest. He's an intercessor, meaning he's praying constantly for God's people. And so Samuel prays for God's mercy to his people. But Samuel has a problem, doesn't he? He's a sinner, just like the people that he's praying for. Samuel will offer a sacrificial lamb as payment for sin. But Samuel has another problem, doesn't he? Because Mary's little lamb, Larry the lamb, or whatever his name was, is not a perfect sacrifice either. Nobody in the Old Testament is getting saved by Larry the lamb. You understand what I'm saying? They're looking forward to the sacrificial lamb. Samuel is a judge, meaning he's speaking the truth about our need for a Savior to his people. But Samuel has yet another problem, doesn't he? It's the same problem we have. We're guilty of the things that we are pointing out in others. There is one, though, who is the perfect priest, the perfect sacrificial lamb, and the perfect judge. 
In the New Testament, the entire book of Hebrews basically walks us through this reality. There are a number of places in Hebrews that we could read and see this. I just want to read you one. Look at Hebrews chapter 7 that paints a picture for us. It says, "...the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office." Okay, so there's lots of priests, but guess what? They all died, so they can't fulfill their role perfectly. But he, that is Jesus, holds his priesthood for a while, no. permanently, because he continues forever. Verse 25, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens." He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. He's the final high priest. He is the sacrifice for sins. He is the bringer of truth. And real repentance is recognizing the truth of our sin and then running to the grace of Jesus. Number three, I want to look at verse seven by itself for just a moment. There's an interesting thing that struck me from verse seven this week. We must recognize Satan is the enemy of repentance. Look at verse seven. We must recognize that Satan is the enemy of repentance. I am not exalting Satan over the primary problem of our sin, let me be clear. But I want us to look at this this reality of the battle that we find ourselves here on earth. Verse seven. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. What's happening here? First of all, the enemy, Satan, loves to attack when you begin to repent. Do not miss that reality of the bigger picture of what is going on. The enemy is not going to take your turning to Jesus lying down. Jesus is king. Satan is not. But understand that he has been allowed for a time to attack you. And if you are turning back to Jesus, he will come after you. Now, in case you think I'm stretching this passage, let's look to the old, excuse me, the New Testament. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8, very well-known verse. First Peter, be sober-minded, be watchful, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. When you turn to Jesus, when you respond to his loving call, when you desire to obey his word, when you share the good news of the gospel with someone, when you begin to live a life where you are discipling and pointing others into a deeper relationship with Jesus, when you desire to walk in holiness and in obedience, you will be attacked. You have a target on your back simply because you are a part of a church plant. Because God has called us to be on the front lines. God has called all of us as believers to be on mission to share the good news. And when you start talking about Jesus, people will not like it. Satan will not like it. Do not do what the Israelites did here, which is run in fear, but remember that Jesus is king. And take it a step further. 
Let us consider how this might apply in our own lives. It just I've been reflecting. Satan loves to attack marriages. Satan loves to attack families. Satan and evil people love to attack what the news media now calls the nuclear family. What does that mean? It means dads, moms, kids. God's plan. Satan loves to attack there because if he can disrupt God's plan for family, for fathers and mothers loving and discipling their children, then he thinks that he might win. So let me just offer you a practical application. Uh, For all of you married folks, and if you're single, think about this if you have a desire to be married someday. Your enemy, even when you guys struggle, is not your spouse. It's not. Yes, your spouse makes mistakes. Your husband and your wife, they, they, they do annoying things. They do frustrating things. But they are not the enemy. Amen? Satan is the enemy. And he would love for you to take your eyes off of Jesus. And he would love for you to take your eyes off the reality that he is the enemy and that your sin is the primary problem. And that your spouse's sin is the primary problem. He would love for you to take your eyes off of that reality and attack one another. Fight back against Satan. Do it by prayer. He hates it. Go back to the word of God. He hates it. Forgive one another. He hates it. Don't miss that reality. How do we do all this? Fourth and finally, we must remember the Lord has helped us. This is verses 10 through 14. We must remember that the Lord has helped us. This is an incredible passage here, here at the end. This is verses 10 through 14. You might hear a couple words or phrases that sound very familiar to you. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. Of course they were. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as beth Then Samuel took a stone, picture this, took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel. From Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. What's the Bible saying here? Well, first of all, it's saying the Lord saves the Lord saves. Do you know that in the Old Testament, the name Joshua, Moses and Joshua, remember the guy Joshua? Joshua's name, if you translate the, the Hebrew name Joshua, it literally means the Lord saves. In the New Testament, people are speaking Greek and they modify the word Joshua to be able to pronounce it in Greek. You know what the word Joshua is in the New Testament? Jesus. Jesus' name literally means the Lord saves. And here in the Old Testament, reflective of the new, Jesus saves. Israel's only hope, only hope is the mercy of God. See, they are hopeless even in their repentance until God 
moves in their lives. It is God who saves us. You notice that the enemy is confused. God actively confuses and defeats the enemy. God wins 100% of the time. It's not us. It's not about you and me. It's about God. And he has already won. It's never in doubt. In fact, that's why Luke chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus himself says this about Satan, by the way. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. You know when he said that? When believers were going out and sharing the good news of the gospel, letting people know that freedom, that real life, that hope was coming. Satan is defeated. Sin is defeated. Maybe you've connected the dots to the famous hymn, Come Thou Fount, written in 1758. It's quoting this exact passage, and we sing, Here I raise my Ebenezer, Hither by thy help I've come. Ebenezer, this word Ebenezer. Interesting fact for you. I would say of all the vocabulary in Scripture, the question I've gotten the most as a pastor is, what does the word Ebenezer mean? You believe that? Shocking. There's a lot of words in the Bible. What does that mean? Ebenezer, it means literally a stone of help. It's a literal stone, a stone of help. But don't miss this. If we, look at, if we step back and look at 1 Samuel for a second, Ebenezer is the name of the stone. Okay, put Scrooge out of your mind, all right? Don't worry about that. Ebenezer is the name of the stone where Israel remembered God's victory. And if we go back a few chapters, 1 Samuel chapter 4, it is the name of the city where Israel got destroyed. It's the name of the city where the ark was stolen. It's not a coincidence. It's not a coincidence. In this Ebenezer moment, they are celebrating and recognizing that God is faithful in every moment. They are recognizing that God is good in the hills and the valleys of your life. Do you understand that this morning? You need to understand that God is faithful in the darkest and the brightest moments of your life. God is sovereign, He's in control of the most difficult and the most joyful moments in your life. And God is merciful in the failure and the persevering moments in your life. He is Ebenezer at all times. And this is exactly what Samuel is reminding God's people of and I get to remind you of today. Till now, the Lord has helped us. And so I want to challenge you. I'm going to give you a practical application this week. After fireworks are done, pull out a paper and a pen. Now, for some of you, you, I've already lost you. Can I use my tablet? Sure, you can use your tablet. I want you to make a list. I want you to consider in what way, what are my Ebenezer moments? Certainly begins and ends with Jesus saved me. But think about in your life the good and the bad. Where are places that God, I can see it so clearly that he has been faithful to me in the good and the bad. Alana and I have two sets of engagement photos. Two sets. And I consider both to be an Ebenezer for us. We got engaged the first time, May 13th of 2011. We got engaged the second time, July 27th of 2012. 
in God's goodness, he broke us up. We weren't ready. God knew it. He knew our hearts, and he broke us up. And it was the worst year of our lives. Many of you knew us at that point in our lives, and I'm telling you, it's an Ebenezer moment. God is so good in the ups and the downs, in the joys and in the sorrows. We have two sets of engagement rings, not actually for that reason. She said yes and took my ring twice, the same ring, but that first ring, it sat in my closet for a year. When she put it back on, it was stolen by somebody. Then we got it back. The police gave it back to us. Then it got run over by a car. We found it in a parking lot later in the day. Then we went on a vacation to Chicago, and we lost it in this hotel room in Chicago, and somebody is wearing a really nice engagement ring somewhere in greater Chicago, and that was the end of it. And so she now has a second engagement ring. What those realities both are, we have two sets of photos. We have, we have two rings. What it reminds me of is that same reality. This is an Ebenezer for us, that God is faithful in every joy and in every sorrow. And what it tells me and what it reminds me of is I think about how much abuse that ring took. And there's still one on her finger and mine, for the record. I'm not going anywhere. She's not going anywhere. Alana, I'm not going anywhere. Where is she? She's taking care of kids. She's with the kids. Alana, I'm not going anywhere. My children, Benji, Lola, Evangeline, I'm not going anywhere. I can't, by the grace of God, I can't do it on my own. What is the Ebenezer for the church of Jesus Christ? What is the stone of help? What, the, the stone of help was a visual reminder that God is faithful in the ups and downs. Those rings for us are, are a visual reminder that God is faithful in the ups and downs and therefore we desire to be faithful. What is the Ebenezer for the church of Jesus Christ? It's the cross, isn't it? Because there is a moment when the Son of God came to earth and died on a cross for sins that he did not commit. And in the greatest moment of injustice in the history of the world, Jesus willingly went to the cross and said, I know what you've done is wrong. I love you anyway. That's an Ebenezer. And I will defeat sin, Satan, and death on your behalf. And three days later, I will rise again. And we have been left with the cross as our Ebenezer reminder that God is good and is faithful. And because Jesus has risen from the dead, he is King of kings and Lord of lords. Maybe you need to return to the Lord this morning. You're a believer and you say, I've wandered far from God. Let July 4th, 2021 be an Ebenezer moment for you. That you return to the Lord with all your heart and say, it's not about me. I cannot do this on my own. I need your grace and your mercy, Lord Jesus. Maybe you've never turned to Jesus once in your life. Let July 4th, 2021 be the day that you can look back on and go, hither by thy help I've come. I need the the fount of living water to save me. I admit I'm a sinner. Forgive me, Lord Jesus, for my sins. They are many, but your mercy is more, we sing. Let's take a moment together and let's pray to this good and loving Heavenly Father, King Jesus and Holy Spirit.